how long will those patterns last? Are people going to shift away from services? Have they decided that they prefer their RV vacations over taking plane trips? Um, and we, we really have not seen that. They continue to kind of perform at that elevated level. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, the podcast about the $4 trillion that state and local governments spend each year, brought to you by, of course, the Center for Municipal Finance at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, and we are proudly sponsored by Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association. Pleased to welcome back my co-host, Liz Farmer. Liz, uh, how did your NCAA bracket turn out this year? (laughs) You know, I used to be obsessed about this, but um, I got other stuff to, to pay attention to now. So thankfully, I didn't even try and fill one out this year, which I'm sure if I had, it would have been completely busted. <laughs> I, I, I think you, you saved yourself a, a lot of a lot of headache by, by not participating this year. I think I, I thought I read somewhere that the to CBS Sports are one of the one of the big, you know, bracket uh, aggregators had reported that something like. 0.00005% or something like that of the brackets that had been filled out had identified the final four that we actually had. It was just one of those years where it was, no one got it right. <laughs> and then the few who did uh, was probably more uh, more luck than than careful analysis. But that's been interesting to watch, but a, a, a very, very different kind of year that way. Yeah. We, uh, we used to be like really in so into the final four that we actually did our baby shower around uh, around the final four weekend back in April. So whenever the final four weekend comes, <laughs> I think, oh, it's the anniversary of our baby shower. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, um, I have heard from friends that that is also sort of at the at the other other end of that continuum that March Madness also happens to be the most popular time of the year to get a vasectomy. Because it's a great time to just sit around and recover and watch basketball. Oh, yes. That's true. I've heard that too. So lots of lots of fertility related planning happening uh, yeah. around the around March Madness for better or for worse. How do you segue from that into state and local finance? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, I'm not sure. In fact, maybe we probably shouldn't even try. We'll just get into it. Uh, so we are we're fortunate today to to continue our conversations with state treasurers, and in this case, uh, welcoming to the podcast Treasurer Rachel Eubanks from the state of Michigan. We'll hear a bit more from her a little bit later on. Uh, and setting that up, Liz, I think it's important to talk, as we have when we've talked to state treasurers before, about the enormous variety that comes with that job, all the different kinds of things that uh, state treasurers are asked to do. And especially in our current environment, which really is one of tremendous uncertainty. We've had, uh, aside from rising interest rates, all kinds of economic uncertainty around are the, are the sorts of consumer behaviors that we saw during the pandemic going to continue? And if they're not, what kinds of behaviors are we going to see instead? We've talked many times on this podcast about the recovery of downtowns and what that's meant for state and local public finance. And now we have layered into this a potential banking crisis and all kinds of other sources of uncertainty It'd be a really difficult time to forecast revenues and go out and borrow money and do all the things that our state treasurers are asked to do. 
when you reflect back on that, given uh, some of your reporting and some of the work that you've been done on that recently, what uh, what do you think are the kind of big sources of uncertainty and what are we seeing for how states and localities are dealing with that with respect to public money? Yeah, it's, I feel like I keep saying this every couple of years, but it, it feels like the most uncertain time to to try to be building a state budget or forecasting revenue. I mean, I, I wrote stories about the increasing volatility of state revenue back in the, the mid 2010s. And, and of course, you had 2020 and then 2021 and 22 were so unexpectedly good. I mean, it's just, and, and <laughs> so I'm working on a story right now for Route 50 about uh, state revenue forecasting and the, the predictions and the, the messaging is all over the board. And there's um, one quote from Oregon's revenue forecast that that really sums this all up. It's like it's and it says something like, uh, "We either have weathered the storm or we're in the eye of the hurricane." <laughs> and I was like, "Who wrote this? Because that's great." <laughs> but it, it also, I'm like, "That's perfect. That's exactly what's going on right now. We have no clue. I mean, there's the banking crisis, and people keep asking me if that's gonna, how's that gonna? Are you looking at that?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah, but everyone I talk to doesn't really know how that's gonna play out yet, or if it'll even." impact the economy to the level of affecting state and local revenues and and you have income tax slowing uh, or income tax revenue slowing but sales tax is still going strong I mean just all kinds of things you know and, and the good column and the bad column and they're both they both seem to be equal so it's really tough to tell where we're gonna go with this yeah I think that's all well said enormous uncertainty so much of it for the first time in a long time factors that are things that we used to pay really careful attention to that we sort of haven't had to pay really careful attention to over the last maybe 15 or 20 years, rising interest rates, the stability of the banking system. Like these were things that we had kind of thought were either worked out or at least weren't going to be the kind of immediate threats that they were in say 2008, 2009. And it's amazing how here we are again, uh, kind of right back where we started. And a lot of those same sorts of Sources of uncertainty that are largely beyond the control of especially state and local finance folks are front and center once again. Yeah. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod Treasurer Rachel Eubanks from the great state of Michigan. Treasurer Eubanks, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thanks so much, Justin, for having me on. Treasurer, uh, I, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, I'm really, I think one of the things we wanted to kind of get out there right off the bat is that you are an, an appointed a treasurer as opposed to an elected treasurer. And as we, we've said before, there's kind of like no two, no two treasurer positions are the same. Can you tell us what's, what is an appointed treasurer and how is that different from, from your counterparts in other states who are elected? This is a great question and a really important distinction. And I think it sets up the stage nicely for the universe of what I do and why it's different than what other treasurers do. Um, so as you pointed out, Liz, very correctly, you know, I'm one of only a handful of state treasurers across the country that is not elected in a statewide level election or maybe even elected by their legislature or another elected process. I'm actually appointed by just one person, appointed by the governor of the state of Michigan, uh, which is subject to advice and consent of the Senate, uh, the, the Senate of the state of Michigan. And I mean, that creates a, a really different dynamic, I think, than most of my elected treasurers. I mean, first, that gives me a very broad set of responsibilities. I think you'll find in states where you've got elected treasurers, 
over the years, you know, some of those big pieces like tax collection, revenue administration, economic forecasting have been kind of removed from the treasurer's offices and put under the governor's administration. But in my case, I have access to all of them. So we do everything from, you know, we administer and collect $24 billion in taxes and fees. We process 8 million tax returns every year. We're in charge of state and local tax policy. We have oversight over economic and revenue forecasting. We invest the state's investment portfolio, which is almost $118 billion on behalf of retired uh, state employees and teachers. We have oversight over local government and school financial health. We help Michiganders realize their post-secondary dreams through higher education, student financial assistance and savings plans. We manage the state's balance sheet. We work with the rating agencies and Wall Street when it's time to issue bonds and working with the capital markets. And we also, like many treasurers do, we manage the unclaimed property program, which returns more than $135 million uh, last year to Michiganders. So a very set a broad and diverse set of responsibilities. We have about 1,300 staff in our treasury, so it's a very large treasury compared to other treasuries across mm-hmm. the country. But really, it's a one-stop shop. So for everything related to you know finances in the state of Michigan, at least until you get to the expenditure side of the budget, falls within my department. That is extremely broad. It must be um, hard. I mean, how do you <laughs> um, how do you keep track of all of that? I mean, what what out of all of those, I guess, are there a few things that kind of rise to the top in terms of taking up the the bulk of your of your time? The, I'm sure it doesn't surprise you with processing 8 million tax returns a year, <laughs> that ends up being the bulk of what we spend our time on. So whether it's on the tax policy side, you know, determining, you know, what should be taxed in Michigan, at what rate should it be taxed, you know, working with, you know, the governor's office and the legislature to de- help design tax policy and being a resource for thinking through implications of what tax policy decisions mean to the state's uh, financial health and to our ability to spend uh, on our priorities is a big piece of it. And I mean, it's just a lot of people, you know, that's about 800 people within our 1300 person department. You know, we've got everyone from, you know, who answers your phone. If you were to call and say, where's my tax refund? We've got somebody who answers the phone to do that. We have people that process the tax returns all the way through, you know, if you have to go through, you know, identity verification, because maybe you've had your identity stolen, or um, if there's an audit situation that's all handled within the department. So that's pretty much the bulk of, of what we do and ends up take, taking, you know, the majority of my time, but I think appropriately given the uh, scale of which it, it sits in the Department of Treasury in Michigan. That makes a lot of sense. It, you know, one of the priorities at the state level at the moment that would seem to cut across a lot of those different parts of your portfolio is, of course, Governor Whitmer's, uh, what sort of got her elected was the, uh, the mantra of just fix the damn roads. It's, there has been, as I understand it, a debt component to that, as well as some jostling around tax policy. How are you, in your role, you know, helping to, to bring that initiative to light? Absolutely. And Justin, by the way, I'm proud of you that you went all the way for it, fixing the damn roads. It's funny, when I <laughs> when I talk to people outside of Michigan, they're always very hesitant to, to actually say it. I think they don't realize you know, that it was something that we all heard on commercials in the airwaves in Michigan you know, five years ago as the governor was campaigning. Um, but you're absolutely right. When the governor was elected, I think she felt she had a mandate to come in and improve road infrastructure in Michigan. And she's you know, gone down uh, a couple paths to get there. I mean, the first was you know, looking at a gas tax increase um, that proved not to be popular. So she moved forward with utilizing the road bonding program that was already available um, to really expedite some of those fixes. And I mean, I'm sure any of you that are focused on infrastructure and infrastructure repair know that you know there's kind of this point of no return that infrastructure can hit. 
and it becomes exponentially more expensive to repair the longer that you wait. And so she made the determination that there's really no more time to wait to come up with a new road funding solution. So she decided to access the bond markets in doing that. So while, of course, the Department of Treasury isn't out there, you know, scooping, um, you know, asphalt into potholes and, you know, ripping up sections of road, you know, we can contribute our expertise in being in the bond markets regularly to say, okay, what do we think is the most, um, you know, cost effective method to providing this huge amount of financing? Because over time, it's going to be about $3.5 billion overall in bonds out there, which is one of the state's largest bonding programs it's ever undertaken. And thinking about the method, how are we how are we going to issue those bonds? Will they be fixed rate? Will they be variable rate? You know, are we going to think about the timing of those um, you know, bond issuances in comparison to when we're expecting the expenditures to happen on the project side? So really using the expertise that we have from being in the market day in and day out to help deliver a lower cost of infrastructure for Michiganders. Just to follow up on that a little bit, you, uh, you came to your role having been in the muni market yourself as a, as a practitioner. What, uh, what's been different about going from the, the, the banker side to the, uh, to the issuer side? You're correct. I actually, not only did I come from that side, but my biggest client was the state of Michigan. So I served the department of which I now lead, which is a very um, interesting way to see both sides of that perspective. Um, but you know, I think in our case, like you actually have to do it. I think on the banking side and you know the advisory side, which is where I primarily served, meaning I served on the same side of the table as my clients. Really, you know, you can throw out the most optimal solutions out there. You can say you can save every squeeze out every basis point that you want, come up with the solution or the structure that you know on paper looks the best. But of course, it's got to be one. It's got to be understandable. You know, you've got to have public officials out there having to be able to describe what it is and talk in plain English to people about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And secondly, you've actually got to, you know, follow up on these things and make sure the bonds get paid every year and all the requirements that the documents fell out, you actually have to do every year. So if it's, you know, a continuing disclosure component, I mean, that sounds easy getting your financial statements uploaded, but, you know, that's a process. And how are you making sure that it gets done? And there's serious implications to um, whether or not they get done, you know, what it means to the state's credit going forward and what investors' perception of the state is. So, and actually getting those debt service payments out. I mean, you know, my goodness, you would not believe that it's not just magic. You don't just push a button and it happens. You actually have processes in place. You have people in place where you have to make sure that that's all working together to make those critical payments on time. Treasurer, you mentioned also about the, the questions of fixed rate versus variable and, and the, the strategies to, to get the most bang for taxpayers' buck. Um, with rising interest rates, I, I've heard mention, I guess, of fixed uh, variable rate uh, bonds again. Um, can you talk a little bit, I guess, about how the rising uh, interest rates has impacted your strategy? So I think now we're actually in an environment or interest rate environment where I might question are we in a rising interest rate environment anymore? <laughs> um, certainly, you know, looking at late last year, the muni market was tracking very closely along with, um, you know, the Fed's actions. And we were seeing, you know, really um, large increases, even in our market, reflecting uh, the Treasury yield curve. But as we've, you know, kind of come into this, the early part of 2023, certainly before we started seeing some of the banking weaknesses with, you know, um, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, you know, we saw interest rates starting to come down. And mm -hmm. there's a few reasons for that. I think there's, you know, a lot of interest in the municipal market. I mean, it kind of 
depends on when cash flows are coming in and out, what, what happens on the execution side. So when investors have money to spend, but even, you know, as we've hit this, I wouldn't even call it a banking crisis. We'll call it a little banking hiccup that we had. <laughs> investors do like to f- fly to quality is the term that we use. And so um, looking for safe investments at reasonable interest rates, and that, that has made the municipal market, you know, relatively attractive. So we've seen interest rates either holding steady or, you know, coming down and everyone's doing the same thing, which is trying to guess really what the Fed's action will continue to be. Um, and will we see interest rates, you know, kind of continue to, you know, tick up on their side, or is it going to kind of hang in this level for a while, or is it going to come down? And there's a lot of uncertainty there. But going back to your question about how do you choose between fixed rate and variable rate? I mean, you know, one of the things I've learned uh, from my career is that you really, when you're dealing with public markets and you're dealing with taxpayer dollars, it's best to not try to outsmart the markets, okay? You, you try to make investment decisions that make the most sense for your project, to make the most sense for operationally what works best. And, you know, if the market works great for you, that's wonderful, but trying to time the market, I've seen so many people um, who have guessed incorrectly and, and unfortunately had um, circumstances that impact the people that we serve. So, you know, we look for solutions that really best work with the projects that we're trying to execute. So you mentioned treasure, the the tax component of what you do, and these are obviously very interesting times with respect to tax revenues, especially at the state level and in particular income tax. There's all kinds of economic uncertainty. And yet uh, Michigan, like it seems a few states, is in a situation where you have this kind of double-edged sword of uh, maybe more revenue than expected, a budget surplus, and some discussion about some tax policy changes maybe in response to that. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there and how you are dealing with that, uh, that economic uncertainty? So you're describing my last three years absolutely perfectly. You know, coming into the pandemic, those early months of the pandemic, you know, the state of Michigan goes through a process of revenue forecasting, which is viewed as a best practice across the country. But we we get together with the House and Senate fiscal agencies, and that's where we agree on those revenue targets, which then the budget is built around. So if you think about January and May, that timing, if you think back to 2020, um, you know, we had a revenue conference in May, which was just basically with one month of data, pandemic related data at the time. And that was a terrible month for the economy. You know, we saw people completely pull back on spending. We saw a decent amount of layoffs. And that created, you know, us to reduce our revenue forecast by $3 billion. And, you know, we're talking, you know, not a huge budget here. And our general fund is about, you know, 10 or $11 billion in Michigan. But over time, you know, as we saw the pandemic play out, it, the behavior, the consumer behavior and what was happening um, with revenues was tracking along in a way that was, I think, surprising to everyone. I mean, first of all, you know, you you had, of course, you had the stimulus programs, you had the pandemic unemployment assistance, the extra $600 that came to those who are unemployed. You had um, the the Paytech Protection Program. Um, we, had, we saw about $40 billion of that in Michigan um, coming to our small businesses. You saw just the stimulus checks and all of that additional dollars that came in to everyone. And uh, people spent it. But what was what was really interesting was they spent it on things that were different than they had done pre-pandemic, which makes sense. You know, when they didn't have the ability to spend on services, and most of these were actually consumer-driven behaviors and less having to do with governmental mandates, you know, we saw um, the shift in the types of 
things that people were buying. So if they're shifting from services and going to goods and um, people, instead of taking their family vacations, were fixing up their houses, they were building decks, they were putting in pools, they were buying RVs, they were buying bicycles. I mean, I don't know if you can remember, like you couldn't find any of these things in those days. And that translated to lots and lots of additional revenue that we saw for the state. And we saw sales tax exceed records numerous times over this period. We also saw, you know, that that corporations were doing pretty well. Our corporate income tax um, saw some really historic levels that we hadn't seen before in Michigan, and as well as just individual tax withholding. So people were working, they're making money, and the, that was coming through um, into the state coffers through the, that withholding process. And we've been, you know, mulling over how long will those patterns last? Are people going to? you know, always shift away from services? Have they decided that they prefer their RV vacations over taking plane trips? And that's really hard to figure out. Um, and it's just, I think, something that time will tell. But as a revenue forecaster who's, who's responsible for predicting the future, it's one of those questions that we keep coming back to. Um, and we, we really have not seen that. They continue to kind of perform at that elevated level. So it also, another interesting facet of what's happening in Michigan is uh, in 2015, in this ties in a lot of the things we've been talking together, which is a road funding package that was spearheaded by our previous governor to increase road funding back in 2015 was a combination of an increase in gas tax and also funding from our general fund for the road projects. And it looked at you know the fiscal year relationship between fiscal year 21 and fiscal year 22 revenue. And it said if it grow at a rate that outpaced inflation plus a multiplier, that the uh, income tax rate would be automatically lowered by the amount of that excess. Well, you know, just what we're talking about in 21 and 22, those are kind of extraordinary years that we were dealing, looking at um, and thinking about, you know, how does that actually translate into state revenues? And so we've seen, you know, during this very unusual time, you know, the income tax revenues um, come in so much above our previous year's levels that it has tr um, translated into an income tax cut of about 0.2%. So our, our uh, individual income tax was 4.25%. or um, And then for tax year 2023, turns into 4.05%. So for our uh, tax year 2023, we would see the 4.05% uh, income tax rate. And then in uh, the following tax year 2024, starting January 1, um, that would then, you know, revert back to that 4.25%. That explains why when I was looking at Michigan uh, news stories, they were talking about it like a taxpayer rebate or something like that. It's sort of like a like a a version, I suppose, of Colorado's taxpayer um, taxpayer bill of rights Tabor, where if the state exceeds a certain revenue growth, then taxpayers get a refund. Um, but Tabor doesn't work the other way around, like like Michigan's does. How was that sold to to taxpayers? Because everybody loves a tax cut or a rebate, but then if the next year, if the if the tax rate goes back up, I mean, is that something that taxpayers like are paying attention to? Or I'm curious about about the language around that. You know, the attorney general just uh, in her opinion, and in her opinion, by the way, is binding to me leading a state agency as in the force of law. So from from what she said, given that it's a one-year implication, that's what we'll have to we'll have to do as long as that law stands. Your question about, you know, what does it mean from a taxpayer perspective? I mean, I think we're looking at it on a year-to-year -year basis, right? So if we see the same phenomenon happen and state revenues continue to be really, really strong, 
and perform in such a manner where hits that trigger to provide the tax relief as what we saw this year, then they would see it again potentially next year. So it's really a year to year look at it and it factors in you know, the strength of our revenues, and which is fundamentally driven by the strength of our economy. So Treasury Banks, I'm wondering if we could talk for a second about marijuana, which uh, Michigan is a state that has legalized recreational marijuana relatively recently, one of the states to, to get into that game a little bit later than some. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those tax collections have looked like um, and whether there's the kind of uncertainty surrounding marijuana taxation that we've seen with a lot of other potential revenue sources. And then also you know, where that money's going, what sorts of programs, policies, et cetera, are being funded by marijuana taxation, because that is also a, a real interesting source of variation across the states. It's interesting. We actually see, this is another area where we've seen revenues exceed expectations. I mean, clearly people are consuming a lot of marijuana and it's showing up in how much uh, revenue is coming from that specific tax. How that is forecasted is actually, it's kind of an interesting question. Um, it's not necessarily viewed in alignment with what's happening with, you know, the rest of the economy. In some cases, it can be viewed as a substitute for, you know, if people are changing their spending from one thing to another, or, you know, are they shifting from, you know, other forms of consumption like liquor or cigarette taxes? So it's an interesting um, relationship between all of those various taxes that we're continuing to monitor as we see more history around the marijuana consumption. Um, now, where the money goes is interesting. So in Michigan, it really goes to four places. Um, it goes to local governments, and local governments are critical partners in helping us create the permitting environment for um, the dispensaries to get set up. They also obviously have responsibilities for law enforcement in their jurisdictions. So some of it goes to them. Um, also, there's dollars that go in our roads formula. So you can see there's a theme here. A lot of the re new revenues that we pick up as a state end up going towards roads in some respect. Um, and also, they go. it kind of goes a couple different ways into the school aid fund to, to pay for schools. We watch marijuana consumption closely because it impacts all of those different factors quite a bit. But actually, to date, it's been a very strong source of revenue, and it hasn't shown any signs of weakness. So, Treasurer, we've been talking a lot about state finances, which obviously are the main part of your purview, but uh, Michigan's also one of these states where the treasurer is uh, certainly involved with uh, local government finance in, in lots of different ways. We've talked a little bit about how some of these same trends, especially the, the federal money and uh, the economic uncertainty and these unexpected revenue outperformance uh, kinds of trends, how's that playing out at the local level in Michigan? So... Uh, you're absolutely right that we spend a lot of time trying to work with our uh, local governments and school districts and keeping track of how they've decided to spend their federal assistance. So, I mean, you know, we want to make sure that it's really that these one-time dollars are being expended in a way that is one-time spending. You know, seeing um, big investments in something that's going to require an ongoing investment year in and year out to maintain, to operate, to continue to function. I mean, you know, things like, you know, water parks or soccer fields or those big um, salary increases um, that don't have the ability to step down, you know, and in, in, uh, when revenues decrease are, you know, things that we're trying to work really closely with local units of government to monitor. Um, so we've tr we've stood up in our in this Department of Treasury, and in fact, since I took office, it's been one of my priorities, which is to try to rebrand the department and how it works with our local governments. 
Um, you know, I think we've been viewed as the enforcement or the police or the regulator quite a bit. And, and we have those responsibilities and we obviously have to make sure that uh, health, safety and welfare of every Michigander is taken care of. Um, but we also want to be a resource. When a local unit of government runs into a problem, we're the first call that they make when, let's say, a CFO resigns or they run into, you know, some sort of accounting issue um, versus when, you know, you get to the, the end of that line and they can't make payroll on Friday and they're, you know, trying to figure out what component of our emergency financial management law would they um, want to use. So we're trying to take a much earlier warning approach. I think what we found is, is when you roll back the clock from financial distress and you look many years before, you see a lot of similar trends. You see, you know, critical vacancies in communities. You see um, weaknesses in various tax types. You see maybe a departure of a major employer um, and an, an attempt to try to diversify the local economy, you know, using their limited resources. But is there something that we can do? at the state level using our state economic development resources or state housing authority resources to help these economies kind of early on before the wheels really come off and it turns into an emergency. So we're, we're trying to you know, create this trusted partner model um, and that's looking at both you know, what would happen in the case of a recession, but also you know, you know you're gonna have this revenue drop off when the federal funds you know, have, to, have to be required to be spent. And so trying to think proactively and have some foresight into how this, these dollars are being spent in a manner that's sustainable and improves the lives of Michiganders in the process. Yeah, you're definitely speaking uh, Liz's, Liz's language now. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, that, that exactly is what I've talked with people about um, who, who, have, who also look at distressed cities is that it's really where you can actually do something is exactly what you talked about when things start to look not great and, and focusing on those economic development uh, points. And that's, that's really cool. Yeah. So uh, one of our big initiatives in the department. Well, Michigan Treasurer Rachel Eubanks, thanks so much for taking the time to tell us about everything that's going on in Michigan these days. Great conversation. Lots of really interesting insights. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, I really appreciate Justin and Liz, you taking the time to hear about what's happening in Michigan and, and appreciate being able to talk directly to your listeners. Thanks again to Treasurer Eubanks. Um, that was, we covered a lot in that conversation and and I think I'm, I'm glad we talked to you about the about her being an appointed treasurer versus elected treasurer and how uh, some states have controller treasurers. One of those is South Carolina, and that's the subject of this week's rips from the headlines. So South Carolina's controller is going to resign, submitted his resignation after a $3.5 billion, with a B, accounting error. A ton of news outlets have reported on this. I'm right now looking at a story from the Associated Press by James Pollard. So the gist is that Comptroller General Richard Ekstrom has been in the post for 20 years, and he came under intense scrutiny following an accounting blunder, and um, but didn't at first resign. And amid calls for him to resign, submitted his resignation to the governor during the last week of March. And what happened was that the Annual Comprehensive Financial Report, or ACFR, exaggerated the state's cash balances for about a decade by double counting the money sent to colleges and universities. 
And as the AP reports, the mistake went unsolved until a junior staffer fixed the error this fall. Um, Officials have said the overstatement did not affect the state budget, but lawmakers alarmed by Ekstrom's inconsistent testimony on the subject slammed his failure to fulfill one of his primary constitutional duties to publish an accurate statement account of state finances. Uh, There's a Senate panel on the state um, investigating this and all, all kinds of talk, but um, but one thing they're talking about now is what to, how to, it, how to, and if to adjust the comptroller position in South Carolina. And one of the things they're talking about is shifting over some of those duties to the state treasurer's office, who is Curtis Loftus, who's also been around a really long time. And uh, you know, some of some of the takeaways here, I think for me, one of the biggest ones <laughs> is about accountability and accounting, and. While it didn't affect the state budget, this so clearly to me says how important it is to have checks and balances and internal controls. And those words, I think, I feel like are not something that sounds super exciting to lawmakers or voters like internal controls. Yes, I am. I am all about that. But but this until something like this happens and you realize, oh, this is why this is why we we have these things in place. Yeah, uh, really glad you you brought to our attention. Gosh, we, we could talk all day just about this issue because it really does put into sharp relief a lot of the the ins and outs of the way that financial reporting works in state and local governments for better or for worse. I think just as you had said, it definitely gets at this basic question of what what is accountability and what is its relationship to accounting. I certainly would like to think that when financial statements are produced according to generally accepted accounting principles and they've been audited, that there's that they're a good representation of what has actually been going on with respect to the state's finances. And it could be any local government or any any other entity that that uh, has to manage public money that has to produce financial statements to that effect. But in fact, I think what the story illustrates is that when you peel back a few layers, you see it's a lot more complicated than that. There's certainly a lot of assumptions about what we what we do with certain dollars there's the you know, the old saying is that public money is different shades of green and i think that's kind of the case here there's the this notion of double counting money moving from one part of state government to another is actually a very common thing this is a, one of the more uh, colorful examples right one of one of these examples that certainly has had a, a larger financial impact but that question of what these transfers look like and how we account for them is is really really important because it's not as simple as just moving money from one part of government to another in fact it can have a big impact on how we think about the liquid resources that are available for one part of, of government versus another so it definitely gets at that question and i think there'll be lots of questions asked about what was assumed what wasn't assumed i think there's going to be a lot of state treasurers and big city cfos and others going and looking at their own assumptions about cash and how they account for transfers of cash from from one part of government to another and i think the other question that this raises too is around uh, the you know, the nature of the audit and, and what we're supposed to take away from the audit a lot of people i think are looking at this saying why didn't the auditors catch this and it goes to your point from a second ago, Liz, there's, you know, big part of what auditors do is go in and look at those internal controls and those policies and those procedures. And we can count on them to let us know that if there's something going on inside of state government that is likely to lead to a major accounting error, some some big difference in the way that different people within state government, for instance, are interpreting uh, an accounting policy or some part of generally accepted accounting principles, that the auditor is going to catch that and call that out and, and then further interrogate that if there's some reason to believe that that's changing 
the, the way that financial reporting is or ought to be done. But in the absence of some big problem with internal controls, or if those assumptions that are being made are maybe not questioned as carefully by the auditors, it's entirely possible that you can have 10 years worth of accounting for cash that ends up, you know, in many ways coming up uh, well short when you look at it from a from a different lens, or as you were saying, a, somebody inside of state government, some junior staffer looks at it and says, wait a minute, what if we assumed this? You would get a very different outcome. And so I think it, it definitely raises questions about the role of auditors. And we've got to be careful here to make sure that we don't kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and, and try to say that there's some shortcoming or weakness in the audit process, because that's also not necessarily... I don't think what has happened here. But then I think in so many ways too, the, the, the third part of this that really strikes me and you alluded to it a little bit ago is the, the the potential disconnect between the budget process and the financial reporting process. You know, we talk about this a lot. It's amazing how in so many, especially larger governments, uh, they are, you know, they're quite literally different staffs, different parts of the building. In some big cities, the budget staff who work for the mayor or the county executive are on one floor and then the financial reporting people and the CFO are on another floor and they literally never talk to one another. And there's some good reasons for that and some not so good reasons for that. But I think this story really, really illustrates that very clearly. How can you have three and a half billion dollars of cash that it turns out you didn't have and have that not directly affect the way that you're thinking about your budgeting. Uh, but in fact, that that's entirely possible. So this really, yeah, it's, it's a great story. It's, it's unfortunate in so many ways, uh, but it really does illustrate a lot of the points that we try to make when we teach this stuff and when we bring new elected officials into the, the public finance fold. These are all things you really need to be aware of uh, because when they go badly, as we're seeing in South Carolina, they can go really badly. Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association. Music